This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. TL Talk Radio, Season 6, Episode 22. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 22 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today, we're speaking with Gary Steger about a recent blog post called Time for Optimism and Constructing Modern Knowledge, a minds-on institute for educators committed to creativity, collaboration, and computing. So... A little bit about Gary. Gary has spent more than three decades helping teachers across the globe make the world a better place for kids. As such, he is one of the world's leading experts and advocates for computer programming, robotics, and learning by doing in the classroom. In 1990, Gary led professional development in the world's first laptop schools and played a major role in the early days of online education. In addition to being a popular keynote speaker at some of the world's most prestigious education conferences, Gary is a journalist, teacher educator, consultant, professor, software developer, publisher, and school administrator. An elementary teacher by training, he's taught students from preschool through doctoral studies. And you also may recall that Gary was a guest on our podcast numerous seasons ago uh, on season two, episode 18. So we're glad to have Gary back. Welcome back, Gary. Great to be here. Thanks for your time. So let's get our conversation started today with a personal story. Um, In case you're new to our listeners, if you were going to give your own introduction around your passion for progressive education, what might you say? Although I'm known for my involvement with educational technology, I've always just viewed that as a vehicle for not just teaching kids the things we've always wanted them to know, maybe with greater efficiency or comprehension, um, but, but to create opportunities for kids to know and do in ways that were unimaginable before. So the longer I'm at this, the more that I find that my work is centered on the Piagetian notion that knowledge is a consequence of experience, that all learning derives from experience, and that school, in its best sense, should be at a place that democratizes access to high-quality experiences, materials, and expertise. Um, so I want to live in a world where teachers wake up every morning and ask themselves, how do I make this the best seven hours of a kid's life? And mm. kids, you know, wake up in the middle of the night with a burning desire to get back to school to work on something that matters to them. That that school is a place where you gain benefit from being co-located in the same place at the same time. Um, where schools take seriously their obligation to introduce children to things they don't yet know they love. Mm-hmm. And that through through rich, authentic experiences that don't just solve grandiose problems, but to respect the dignity and um, and beauty and power and innocence of childhood and what we know about about learning, um, we can make the world a better place for for both kids and teachers and make school a more productive context for learning. I'm not one of the the folks who 
runs around saying that schools are irrelevant. Um, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see the future, um, ex except that I know that at least now school is where the children are. And we need to have a sense of urgency about doing the right thing by kids. I'm moved by a sign that I saw in Reggio Emilia, Italy, that said, we are indeed partisans, partisans on the side of the child. Hmm. And as my friend Jonathan Kozel likes to say, you're only seven once. And while we dither and say manana or we'll get to that next year, kids are missing out on really important, powerful learning experiences. You know, just a really practical example, you know, microcomputers have now been in your schools for 40 years. <laughs> I'm not a historian, but I think that's two generations. You mentioned in the introduction that I began working in one-to-one -one settings 30 years ago. The fact that we're still arguing over whether kids should have access to modernity and modern tools for knowledge construction makes my head explode. Um, that's an awful lot of kids who have been robbed of really powerful learning opportunities um, because of our intransigence or lack of imagination. Um, and I'm... I'm moved by the number of teachers who who want to do the right thing. And I think we're at, we're at a time where there are great opportunities for a lot of us to realize, well, our hopes and dreams for education, to, to bring to life the reasons why we decided to become educators. And it, would, it behooves us to, to seize those opportunities. So in the, in the uh, blog post that I think you wrote at the end of the summer called Time for Optimism, uh, you really focus on this idea of a progressive vision for education. And so just to frame it for, for our listeners, how are, how are you distinguishing what you called unapologetic, unapologetically progressive schools, and why is that important? A progressive learning environment is a setting where kids are surrounded by the material support and materials and inspiration and um, emotional intellectual support to realize they're part of something larger than themselves, that they can work on something that matters, that they can work on something that takes more than a 42 minute class period that connects disciplines, that connects powerful ideas where the, the materials are engaged in a conversation with the student so that when they, they do something, it immediately un unveils to them something else that they might try that the experience leads towards the construction of a larger theory or the asking of a deeper question um, where there's a lack of competition and a lack of coercion, where the role of instruction is subordinate to the power of experience, where the system believes that um, not only children are competent, but behaves in a fashion that believes their teachers are as well, that both teacher and student alike not only have have choice about how and what they pursue, um, but but also agency in, in in realizing those objectives. You know, there's a lot of talk about student voice these days, but student voice without power is just empty, cynical propaganda. Hmm. So, I, I think a progressive environment is a place where the project is a teacher's <laughs> smallest unit of concern, and where the skills that we might want kids to understand emerge from projects. It's an environment where we don't dismiss the role of the teacher, but that it changes um, from, from someone who's either lecturing breathlessly from bell to bell or choreographing every instance of what happens in a classroom. The, the teacher in a progressive setting creates a context in which kids are working on things independently and collaboratively and with the teacher and without the teacher. And, and moving freely between those kinds of experiences and making connections along the way. So the reason why I asked the question is because there will, will be some of our listeners who this isn't something that's in their, um, their paradigm, their way of thinking about things. And I think that this isn't the, the dominant conversation yet. And so I think it's important for us to sort of distinguish what we're talking about for the rest of the of the podcast. And maybe you can, I, I know in your article, you said you've been inspired by a lot of the work that you've been doing more now than ever in your career. So can you, can you give us an example of, you know, for our listeners, what does that progressive uh, learning environment look like from an example that you've been immersed in well, most recently? 
over the last few months, I've worked with a number of schools, all kinds of different settings across the United States and Mexico and Australia, where the schools are unapologetically saying to their community, this is a place where we don't rank and sort children, where we don't give grades, where we don't have homework, where we, um, where, where the major focus of what happens during the school day is kids engaged in long-term, personally meaningful, complex, serendipitous projects. And, and I find that when parents and educators can see through the eyes and the hands and the screens of their kids what's possible, a lot of them want that kind of experience for their kids. Um, I'm amazed by when I'm staying at a hotel in Hong Kong and the young hotel manager finds out that I'm there and asks if she can buy me breakfast because she wants to discuss why her three-year-old is miserable at preschool and doesn't need to be that way. Hmm. I think there's, a, there's more demand for a, a more progressive, humane, learner-centered, creative, playful, joyful, whimsical educational experience than, than current policy might suggest. Um, and the other thing that I said in that article is there are signs of this. There's, there's, there's anecdotal evidence, not just my own, to suggest that this is the case. From the Koch brothers building progressive schools for their own children and grandchildren um, to the fact that I think we're going we're gonna to hit a demographic shift where millennials are having their children and sending them to school. And this is a generation who grew up under the repressive regime of no child left behind. And they want something different. They want a different quality of educational experience for their kids than they had. And, and it's exciting to me that I think there's, there are opportunities to help realize the reasons why most of us went into education. Um, because there's going to be, as I mentioned earlier, more more demand than the, the demand is going to outstrip supply. Mm-hmm. So you think the uh, the demand is gaining momentum? Do you think anytime soon we're going to hit a tipping point where it's going to become like the dominant conversation or the dominant oh, way of looking at learning I, environments? You know, I often say that um, bad I- educational ideas are timeless and. Um, national geographic boundaries or and you know and they're impervious to ge- geographic boundaries you know when you hear an idea that's being talked about in Soweto and Sydney and Springfield Massachusetts within days of one another it's usually a terrible idea <laughs> and and we know that when great things are happening in classrooms or schools um, a stiff wind the change of principle an op-ed in the local newspaper can undo it in a split second um, so I'm, I'm, I, I don't know about changing the world, but I think there's an awful lot we know about improving classroom practice and making a, one or two or a small district a more productive context for learning. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not power, you know, I, I no longer engage in the conversation of, oh, if only we knew what to do. You know, when when school leaders say that to me, I suggest they swing by my house. I have several thousand books on my shelves that'll teach you how to teach better, how to create more productive context for learning, how to realize some of these progressive visions. Um, We just need a willingness to do so. And I even think the the current sort of fascination with educational tourism. I don't know if you run across this, you know the caravan of educators from somewhere that goes somewhere else to visit schools looking for truth, (laughs) Um, you know, because they want to know how it's done the best. Why don't you just try to do something? Why don't you be the best? Why don't you be the leader? If you've got a a set of policy ideas or imaginative notions for classroom practice, why don't you do it? And then let people check out what you're up to. I think the sort of quest for the right answer just over, over yonder, um, is kind of a, a cycle of dependency and, and, and just um, results in inaction. I think that it's a, this is a time for action. There's a lot of reasons politically and, and um, scientifically uh, in this world that we're, we're faced with a lot of man-made threats that we need to respond to and we need to do it quickly. And I think a educational vision that's rooted in a notion that people are confident and competent and self-reliant um, is, is a way forward. And as I mentioned to you, I'm, 
I'm working with any number of schools that are at least rhetorically saying they want to do things that sound fairly outlandish. Now, I don't find them to be outlandish. I actually think that between 1967 and 1977, all over the world, there were lots and lots of examples of this stuff in practice, the open education movement, the British school movement, um, you know, the Reggio Emilia approach, all, all emerged around the time of the civil rights movement. You know, parents had public sector employment, school desegregation, created new opportunities um, for, for kids to not only learn, but for communities to exercise power and the, the black white achievement gap narrowed. Um, but that was kind of a golden age in my estimation of, of public education. And the fact that there are lots of people discovering some of those concepts and techniques and objectives in 2019, 2020 gives me reason to hope that that we can we can do a better job this time than we have in the past. And then then there are all sorts of new inestimable challenges um, associated with realizing those aspirations. And one of those challenges, of course, is um, educating our learners, our teachers, and the community all at the same time to realize our dreams. And you follow that up with a list of issues that we need to consider and address. Can you highlight a couple of your ideas um, from that list? Well, you know, no one is a greater fan of educators and the commitment they've made to, to society and to their vow of poverty um, than, than I am. But I think it's a simple reality that around 1985, legislatures all over the world decided, hey, teaching ain't nothing. And teacher preparation abandoned the art of teaching. And all that was left was anim animal control and curriculum delivery. When I studied to be an elementary school teacher in the early to mid 80s, we had to learn how to play the piano a little bit mm -hmm. and sing songs and bake cookies and make math manipulatives and take nature walks and teach science and phys ed and deal with multiple handicapped students. And we had to be familiar with a, a swath of children's literature and different approaches to literacy development. Um, and then, like I said, policy switched on a dime and decided, you know, we can give you a backpack full of tricks and five hours of instruction and stick you in a classroom. And that's all that matters. Um, and it, that's been accompanied by what I call the educational policy spiral, where we we're continuously removing agency and discretion from teachers. And then they become more um, automatic and less thoughtful in their practice. And then whatever we could determine to be results suffer. And then we repeat that process in a spiral downward where teachers have become you know, the sort of deliverers of other people's curriculum, regardless of the particular students you're serving, regardless of the class size. When I student taught fifth grade with a veteran teacher near the end of her career, she taught me very something very powerful. She said something very powerful to me on the first day. It was probably the only advice she gave, she gave me while I was student teaching. And that was, the kids are never all here. When you can grab five, you do math. And then you as a teacher keep track of who you did what with and what kinds of understanding they demonstrated. And then you keep, you keep track of that and you make sure that everyone eventually gets through the material. Um, we've had an educational system since No Child Left Behind, certainly, that's been based on the faulty assumption that all of the kids are here all of the time. They're attentive. They're not sick. They're not hungry. They're not disinterested. They're hanging on the teacher's every word. And if the teacher just, you know, reads the page ahead and, and d delivers, you know, the objectives to the children, everyone will learn. And that's kind of the worst example of the preposterous notion that, that learning is the direct result of having been taught. In my own work, I'm finding that that instruction isn't nearly as effective as cre creating environments in which learners of any age are actively engaged in doing something, in making something, in, in solving a problem that matters to them. Um, so the challenge that, that I think the schools face is even when they have these lofty objectives to be more progressive, to be more child-centered, to be more creative, we have to build the plane while flying it because it is simply the case that 
standard classroom teaching practices that I assumed everyone knew how to do and knew about and was familiar with is not the case. So, you know, one of the reasons why I'm optimistic, and I mentioned this in the, in the blog post, was ideas like classroom centers or authentic assessment and reflection and metacognition and collaboration and conversation, um, kind of baseline human notions of, of interaction and maybe even learning um, are being touted widely and, and passed around and gee whizzed about in edgy Twitter. <laughs> and, and a lot of the advice that's being given under those banners is really denatured, in some cases, really reckless and terrible and um, wrong. But being a half full kind of guy, I think the fact that they're talking about this stuff is, is reason for optimism. And then it's my job and people like all of us to help teachers understand what those ideas actually represent and how to realize them in your classrooms. Do you think that, that we smash the curiosity out of educators? Mm. Like, is that a missing element in, in a lot of this and that we're just so anesthetized sure, I, to do the, sure, I think, the usual delivery curriculum, traditional standardized thing, and nobody's really questioning their own practice? If we care about children, we would find as many different opportunities as possible to have them spend as much time as imaginable in the company of interesting adults. And I'm, I'm instead of curious, I'm, I'm more intrigued by the notion of interesting. Um, everyone knows the teacher who stand, stays in the classroom till 11 o'clock at night, cutting up letters to put on the bulletin board and is working really hard and is exhausting themselves. Um, but, I, but I'm not so sure it's not such a, it's not a better idea for that teacher to go home when the bell rings and tend to their hobbies or go to a concert or read a book or attend a lecture or just even watch good television. Um, you know, great artists aren't people who sit in the practice room all their time or never leave their studio. The best artists reflect their milieu and the culture in which they live. Every, every city has a saxophonist who plays higher and faster than anyone for miles around. But those don't tend to be the people who make a contribution to the cultural continuum. Um, because they're technicians the great artists are the people who represent the time in the world in which they find themselves and have have a response to it that, that that's been constructed by by living fully in that world so i think teachers who have robust three-dimensional lives and interests are of great benefit to kids and they're the sorts of folks who create classrooms where kids can become great at something and I, I, I'm really concerned by the notion of how do we create environments where you can become great at something, well, at least good at something, mm -hmm. and not so interested in what the something is. Mm -hmm. I think that's a variable that can, that can vary quite widely, and that can be filled in by the learner themselves. Yep. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, I mean, surely we, we've, by continuously removing agency and discretion, we've dehumanized the profession. You know, I, I was in a setting recently in a school, like I, I mentioned, that's, you know, trying to do all these progressive things where when a nine-year-old asked, are we going to do multiplication soon? The teacher replied, I'm not sure. Or what are we doing next? And the teacher said, I, I haven't looked in the book yet. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying this is a bad teacher. I'm saying that it's become okay to just turn the page and go oh and and just follow the instructions mm -hmm. and and that's not the kind of teaching artistry that i think benefits kids and i don't think it's as much fun for teachers either mm -hmm. and it's the result of having this faith-based relationship with the curriculum and these remarkably repressive stupid boneheaded policies that say every inch of wall space in the school has to be littered with standards and affirmations <laughs> and types of angles and parts of speech as if anyone is reading that ugliness <laughs> in the first place. Um, and, and that says that 
every kid has to be at the same place at the same time, and we're going to surveil teachers to ensure that they're delivering our curriculum. And, you know, it it becomes a self-parody, and then we have to come up with all sorts of gimmicks to help people navigate a morbidly obese curriculum because nothing ever goes away. We just keep piling on, and teachers have no emotional, intellectual engagement in it. Everyone constantly becomes numb. The air goes out of the balloon. You know, they're... There are two kinds of classrooms I'm most commonly observing now. There are monasteries where you know kids are just hunkered over worksheets, you know, silently completing them, and insane asylums where you know, everyone's bouncing off the walls. And and there needs to be something in between. I I'm often I often find myself asking, you know, where's the pirate ship? If I if I walk into your school on a Saturday, would I have any sense of what happens here during the week? Mm-hmm. Is there any evidence that there's ever been children in the place and, and not, not the store-bought laminated classrooms rules sign that's hanging in my three-year-old <laughs> grandson's preschool? Um, you know, aside from it being incredibly authoritarian and non-democratic and unproductive to buy a set of class rules and laminate it so it can survive nuclear winter and affixing it to the wall, um, how many of the two- and three-year-olds are reading it? And yet we, we, like I said, we ugly the environment with this, that it's not a place that belongs to the kids and the teachers. It's some place that belongs to the system. And I'm optimistic that there are schools that are breaking away from that regime and doing so with very little resistance. Mm-hmm. My favorite public school in the world, a lo- lovely little public school, Spensley Street Primary School in Melbourne, Australia, has been unapologetically open education, open plan for 50 years. There's four teachers in a space with 80 kids, K to six. They work on projects. The, the level of sophistication and depth and community involvement and authentic assessment that takes place in a school is quite extraordinary. And when the federal government came to them a few years ago and said, we're going to administer standardized tests across the nation, and then we're going to rank your schools from A to F, that school said, no, thank you. And the government went away (laughs) and they were able to sustain it because they continuously educate parents and teachers about authentic assessment and they, the community values what they do. And they like that when their kid comes home from school and they ask, what did you do today? The kid doesn't say nothing. They've got an interesting story to tell about something they did, something that matters to them. And um, so I, I don't find the resistance all that, all that formidable. Um, in fact, I work in a lot of settings where when I suggest that someone does something that's, that's if you want to use the term again, more progressive, um, they often ask, well, you know, won't someone, and there's a lot of mumbling and head, you know, spinning around, stuttering and stumbling for why they can't do it. And, and it often comes down to a fear that someone might look askance at you. Um, but it's not much more than that. And Educators have a responsibility to educate not only the kids that they're fortunate enough to serve, but their colleagues, their administrators, the parents in the community, the guy next to them on the bus. And we need to do a better job of articulating and communicating an articulate vision that stands on the side of children's children that that exerts or I'm sorry, that asserts the confidence and professionalism and competence of educators. And I think if we do so and we, we live our beliefs, um, there are a lot more people supportive of what, we, what we're trying to do than, than one might think. You can't choose from what you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. And you, don't, you, know, you make a mistake as a school community if you ask, you know, what's important to you? And the parents say, rigor, getting into Harvard. Well, don't ask that question. Um, ask questions where, where you can predict what the answers are going to be and where you can build consensus to take the baby steps or major steps that not only worry about what I hope to do Monday, but point in the direction of what you hope to, to realize someday without those, those compromises distracting you from what you, you know is in the best interest of, of teaching and learning. So let's shift gears a little bit here to uh, constructing modern knowledge. Um, you created this about 13 years ago, and this is really a learning opportunity, a professional learning opportunity that seeks to empower teachers, to empower learners. Um, and we've read a little bit about this and seen seen this. And 
it surely does look exciting and challenging <laughs> and uh, mirrors a lot of what you're talking about is possible for, for our classrooms. Um, so tell it, us a little bit indeed, about this. Sure. It is indeed all of those things. Um, you know, there's been two kind of seminal experiences in my own career that give me a lot of clarity about what's possible. And as I mentioned, you know, room for optimism, reason for optimism. My, my doctoral research was based on creating a multi-age, heterogeneous, project-based alternative learning environment inside a prison for teenagers. I did this alongside Seymour Papert. A, and it was students from 13 to 21 who had a laundry list of learning disabilities stapled to their foreheads and who, who had lost the parental lottery and who, who were finding themselves in a world that didn't care very much about them and a society that feared them or loathed them. And when kids were able to spend five hours a day working on personally meaningful projects uninterrupted and supported with appropriate materials and, and adults who cared about them, the, the kids were able to do extraordinary work and, and experience levels of intellectual and creative satisfaction and out, demonstrable output um, that was quite extraordinary. Um, as you mentioned, about 13 years ago, I became concerned about the fact that the educational technology community that I spend a lot of time in wasn't thinking enough about learning and that the progressive heroes of mine when asked about modernity would would view computing as dystopian you know ideas like class dojo using technology to surveil or repress or punish or bore children into compliance um and that we needed to build a bridge between these two communities to demonstrate that things need not be as they seem. And that technology was a way of, of amplifying human potential, that it could be used in a continuum with, with other materials for intellectual exploration and creative expression. You know, I had the great opportunity about a month ago to give a public lecture in Reggio Emilia, Italy, uh, which is for the Reggio Emilia Foundation, which is kind of like the most extraordinary experience in my life. And I was saying most educational technology pales in comparison to paint or clay, but not all. And computer programming in particular is a way where we can make things out of something that didn't exist before. And we can enhance and enrich um, intellectual ex exploration and human expression. So I took everything that I knew about creating a great class, a kindergarten classroom and what I learned from Seymour Papert and from people like Deborah Meyer and, and Herb Cole and the British Infant School Movement and Reggio Emilia approach and decided that if no one else would do it, I'll create an environment where teachers could spend four days working uninterrupted on personally meaningful projects with a mountain of materials. Last year, we shipped 60 cases of stuff. We had over 500 books in a library. We built a utopian learning environment in a hotel armory for four days where teachers recognize that not only things need not be as they seem, but they themselves are capable of being really powerful learners. So we have a, a ritual we go through at the beginning where we ask educators to, to come up with ideas for things they want to make. And some of the ideas tend to be rather practical and others are, I want to make massage shorts or a animated Marie Antoinette wig. And then people bunch up based on their interests and we open up the, the learning space, we have a remarkable faculty of, of technology pioneers and great educators who support them in their projects. And um, once a day or so, we interrupt the project development for them to engage in conversations with um, some of the top greatest thinkers and accomplished inventors and artists of our time. We've punched way above our weight. We've not only had Jonathan Kozel and Deborah Meyer and Alfie Cohn and Eleanor Duckworth and Lillian Katz and, you know, my heroes in progressive education, but we've had Pete Nelson, a treehouse master and an 18 year old who was the world's leading authority on Negro league baseball history and a light artist who paints mountains, purple and bathes cities in lights and a several Grammy award winners and national endowment for the arts, jazz masters, three MacArthur geniuses. Wow. And we like to say that, the educators don't listen to these people. They get to spend time with them. They get to interact with them. And it's been no more fulfilling experience in my life than 
seeing the look of just sheer thrill uh, and joy on the face of a teacher sharing something they've been working on with colleagues they had never met before for a couple of days with Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author of the 1619 Project for the New York Times, or Jonathan Kozel, or going to going for soup dumplings in Boston one night with with Carlo Rinaldi or one, teaching the great Edith Ackerman to play Pokemon Go that <laughs> that I think there's something really powerful that comes from from creating an environment that's free of coercion and competition where anything is possible where you could choose what you want to work on who you want to work with the project can evolve and take different twists and turns um, and you get to spend time with people who are great at things. Because I think just like students gain benefit from access to expertise, I think the same is true for teachers. So CMK is a passion project. It's a work of insanity on my part. Um, I, I ended up in physical therapy after it last year from the schlepping of materials <laughs> and packing of boxes. And when when... <laughs> I load everything in California and ship it to New Hampshire and then it arrives. We have lots of people who unpack it. And then I spend the entire Institute worrying about how I'm going to pack it up again to get it out of there. And then when it arrives a couple of weeks later, back at my home in Los Angeles, I weep in the summer sun and figure out where to stick everything for another year. <laughs> um, but, but I, I know that it changes teachers' lives. Mm -hmm. And just like the severely at-risk kids who, who were engaged in work that was so demonstrably superior to what would happen in a traditional classroom, when people saw what these kids are capable of, they never asked questions about teacher-student ratio or test scores or how do you know they're learning. When they walked in and they said, and a kid said, hi, I'm Joey, let me show you what I'm working on. People left impressed and said, of course, this is what we should be doing for children. And I think the exact same thing is true for what teachers are able to accomplish in constructing modern knowledge. They, they routinely make things that are beautiful, that are whimsical, that are practical, that are ingenious, that in some cases would have earned them a master's degree from the, a top engineering school a, a year or two ago. Um, and that they, they see that they can use cutting edge materials with timeless craft traditions and everything else um, in a way to reignite their own passion and sense of competence and confidence in themselves as learners. You know, we asked the teachers at the beginning of CMK to take off their teacher hat and put on their learner hat, to be selfish with the experience. Mm -hmm. And anytime they want to talk about my principal is a jerk or how do I get an extra toner cartridge or, um, you know, why do we have to give these tests? We say, um, we'll get to that. We'll have time to get to that later. And we want the people to experience um, what learning really looks like and what they're capable of doing. And I, I find out things years later about the impact that the experience has had on these teachers. We do it entirely without vendors, without sponsors, without corporate funding, without government funding. I, it's all at my risk. And, but I, I know that what we're doing is dramatically improving the lives of, of, some number of teachers and and the students they serve you know when when a teacher comes back for the seventh time mm -hmm. or fifth time um when we find out that they enrolled in a doctoral program somewhere or they they, they moved to india or took you know, people take risks and change things and do stuff in their lives and their careers you know we had a teacher i'll, I'll be candid with you every year i say i'm never going to do it again it's just too much and part of my frustration is I want every teacher on earth to have the experience. And it breaks my heart that it's so difficult to, to encourage people to participate. Um, and we keep it as inexpensive and, as possible. And, and a couple of years ago, I really thought it was the last time. And then some teacher tweeted, so it was very public. She tweeted that she had quit teaching in June mm -hmm. and came to CMK anyway. And at the end of the four days, she recognized, I'm getting choked up thinking about it now. Mm -hmm. She recognized that, that the classroom was the only place for her and that she needed to go back. And as she was going back with a renewed passion and she'd overcome any kind of concerns about burnout that she had experienced because she had come to this magical place that we create um, where, to use the term you mentioned, Randy, earlier, uh, is unapologetic. 
We make no compromises at all. And the structure hasn't changed in over a decade because we're so confident that creating an environment where, where you're able to realize your own aspirations um, leads to the, the most powerful learning experience imaginable. Well, clearly you've convinced yourself to uh, move forward another year as we have linked some information for uh, this summer session, July 14th to the 17th. Um, you can we find that in the show notes. We have a couple surprises in store. Alfie Cohn is returning um, as, as our kind of progressive education <laughs> expert and provocateur. Alfie's personal genius is his unbelievable ability to get teachers to confront their compromises. And I'm also excited that we're bringing in someone as a guest speaker um, who I've been wanting to get for a number of years, Lenore Skenazy, who's been called the world's worst mom. She's the expert in free range children, free range parenting, and <laughs> now runs an organization called Let Grow that not only collects data about the power of allowing children to, to learn freely and to play freely and to just be children as we used to know it, um, but is, has a couple of really exciting projects. One is a school project where you wouldn't think you'd have to teach schools how to do this, but the, the, the assignment is go home and do something unsupervised and come back and talk about it. <laughs> and they've got wonder, wonderful examples of entire communities being transformed by this experience. And an even simpler notion one would think of meeting parents and children in a park and distracting the parents for two hours and telling the kids to go play as far away as possible. So that the parents recognize that kids can play without being hovered over and, and smothered and that they're not at risk. They're actually more endangered by, by the over-parenting, the over-teaching, um, the, the emphasis on compliance and uniformity. And we'll, we'll announce another amazing guest speaker in a week or two and a new – we've gone to the MIT Media Lab for a number of years and we're going to change that up this year. And our big night in Boston will be hosted by another – world-class institution so there's a lot of exciting stuff coming at cmk july 14th to 17th 2020 if you can believe we're going into 2020 <laughs> so we'll have that linked in the show notes for our listeners okay. thanks so much for sharing gary as we wrap up our conversation here uh, we have a few lightning response questions to give our listeners some more resources are you ready sure <laughs> okay who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about progressive education Deborah Meyer. All right. Second question. Who have you read that shaped your beliefs about deep and powerful learning? Seymour Papert, Herbert Cole, Laura Spellaguzzi, Seymour Saracen, Deborah Meyer, Lillian Weber, um, John Holt, you know, uh, Carol Gilligan. The list is kind of endless. <laughs> All right, last question. Um, is there an online site or resource or person that you learn from regularly? Online. You know, this is, this, is, this is funny because I've been online in some form since 1983. I attended my first online conference in 1985. <laughs> so a lot of the overhyped G. Willikers aspects of what social media were going to deliver for education, I was never a, I was never on board with. I always just viewed this as a dial tone. And, and I've always been the kind of learner who, when I wanted to, to, to learn something from someone, I went to where they were and I established a relationship. And, you know, I met Mr. Rogers that way and Jonathan Kozel and Seymour Papper and Herb Cole and, you know, the list of people that, that are, and my, a lot of Australian colleagues that I've learned a great deal from. And I've learned about, you know, Reggio Emilia by going there. And I've learned about the, you know, the anarchist movement and their impact on early 20th century education from a colleague in Spain. Um, so there's hardly anyone that I value that I learned from online that I didn't know already. However, and everyone will be shocked by this, there's a teacher in Hong Kong named Stu Lo, who does really clever engineering and computer science coding robotics projects with little kids that I've actually learned a lot from via his Twitter feed. And I've never met the guy before. Um, and so it does happen occasionally. Mm -hmm. And 
and what I learned from him is rather practical stuff. He's got ingenious ideas and I've found out about some technology that I was unaware of. And then that makes me sound like a genius when I speak to an even bigger audience. Um, so it, it does happen, but I, I, you know, I, I, I go to see a lot of live music because it's the stuff that renews me. And it's, I, I wanted to be a jazz musician until my conspicuous lack of talent caught up with me. And I've learned a great deal in the company of some of the world's best jazz musicians. And on any number of occasions, I've had people ask me questions like, I see on Twitter or Facebook, you go to a lot of concerts. How do you do that? I said, okay, sit down. <laughs> you have a paper and pencil. I'll break it down for you. Um, you ready? I go to... I buy tickets and then I go. Oh my gosh. And and that's advice that I would give students who want to apprentice with someone. People are willing to share their expertise, particularly with young people who love what they love mm-hmm. you know, as much as they do or is interested in what they do. Um, educators who want to learn more um, should, you know, put on some pants and leave the house or read a book or um, recognize that every problem has been solved somewhere before, but should try to create real experiences for themselves and develop real relationships with either ideas that live in print or with people who are exponents of those, you know, those ideas in, in real life. That's great advice. And I think one of the things that we really admire about you, Gary, is your unapologetic belief that there's something inside of everybody and through a a powerfully designed learning experience that uh, gets to emerge. And I think that that's, that's a really powerful vision of learning and, and inspiring to us too. So really appreciate that and thank you for that. We have, we, we have to build a system that's based on the notion that parents love their children and that as a community, we care about the welfare of kids. Mm-hmm. There's, there's plenty of reasons for d- to despair about that on a daily basis, mm-hmm. but, but the alternative is, is untenable. You ha- we have to re- remain hopeful and recognize that, um, you know, we have an obligation to, to serve the kids that are that are that are in our communities and that those of us who know better need to do better. Well, really appreciate you sharing that and inspiring the rest of us to believe and, and think more in that way. So you've shared a little bit about what's coming with constructing modern knowledge. Is there anything else that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners to wrap up our conversation today? Well, I sort of alluded to before, I'm endlessly challenged by helping realize these progressive visions in in the contexts that are at least saying that they want to achieve that. Of how how do you? Will Richardson and I just did did some modern learner labs together in Boston and DC, and and Will began by asking people to share questions that they had about education and things that they were pondering and. And he was making the case that the the why questions were more important than the how questions. And I'm not so quick to dismiss the how questions. I think that if we want to do right by kids, we need to recognize that we don't know. Everyone doesn't know what to do. So a lot of what I'm doing is mentoring teachers in in their classrooms, creating model lessons pulled out of thin air with 10 seconds notice to show teachers through the eyes and the hands and the screens of their kids what's possible so that they'll be inspired to take the next step that they'll they'll see um you know teaching modeled that that's not relying on instruction but is more dependent on creating a context in which students are are engaged in, in doing purposeful pursuits um the thing I'm thinking about a lot now is um, young children in computing. And I, I had an epiphany recently where I, it, it occurred to me that I think that the reason why so much of what we're doing with little kids and technology is so impoverished and, and has such limited play value, you know, that the kids do it once and never return to it, um, is because we've gotten it exactly wrong that we're designing hardware and software and activities that are kind of denatured and dumbed down and simplified for smaller children, um, rather than figuring out a way to support young children in doing things that are more complex. And 
the research that I want to conduct, and I'm trying to find some institutions that are interested in partnering with me in this, um, would help teachers learn to sit next to a child and have the kid direct how they would like a program to be written in a fashion quite similar to the timeless tradition of a preliterate child dictating a story to an adult who helps them realize it in text. And the teacher would develop tech chops through doing that. They would also develop their own skills as a researcher of being carefully listening and understanding the thinking of each child. Um, and the kid would have a better sense of, of agency over an increasingly complex and technologically sophisticated world of sequencing, of debugging. They would have a way of expressing their ideas, not just through two-dimensional drawing um, or, or speaking, but through communicating formalisms to the computer that could realize themselves as, as games or simulations or interactive stories or animations and such. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious about creating rich experiences where younger children are capable of using the, the robust tools that older people can use, but in a, in a setting where there's sufficient adult support to realize mm -hmm. those aspirations. Mm -hmm. If that makes some, any sense. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Gary. Um, to learn more about Gary's work, you'll see a variety of links in the show notes. We included some of the experts you recommended, um, as well as some information about CMK and your contact information. Each episode, we really leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, after today's conversation, how optimistic are you for the future of progressive education? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season six, episode 22. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your work. Thank you. to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.